Always wise to give it a round of applause before rather than after. <laughs> yeah, we did have a terrific time in Cape Town. Grace and I got back to Heathrow at uh, 6.30 last Sunday morning. And uh, we didn't manage to make it here, but we did get back in time to make it to our other congregation at Ashley Road. So we uh, scooted home, had a shower, and then managed to get to Ashley Road, which was great. Although I must confess, I was somewhat fading in and out at points as we sat in the meeting last Sunday, as uh, sometimes I see some of you doing when I'm speaking. So, <laughs> right this morning. <laughs> This morning we're talking about a vision for the future. Richard's just been talking about vision, vision in terms of uh, what the, the big picture of what God's called us to and vision for our offering that as we give money, as we seek to raise huge sums of money, it's for not to raise money for raising money's sake or building buildings for building's sake, but for the vision that God's given us to proclaim his gospel in the place where he's put us. And uh, the vision thing is important. Every institution, organization, politician seeks to have a vision. And sometimes that can seem pretty shallow. It can seem just like a box-ticking exercise. But when we look at the story of Daniel, we see that Daniel is a man of vision. Daniel is a man who is gifted by God to interpret the visions, the dreams of other people. And he's a man who also is given visions by God. And where we're picking up the story today, Daniel chapter 10, page 896 in these Bibles, if you want to follow along. Daniel has now been in Babylon for 70 years. It's been a long season of exile. 70 years before, King Nebuchadnezzar had come to Jerusalem He'd uh, attacked it, triumphed over it. He'd taken a bunch of people from Jerusalem into exile, into Babylonia. And Daniel had been there for those 70 years. And so he's now probably at least 85 years old. He's an old man in Babylon, and he's seen different kings and different empires rise and fall in those 70 years. And now there's a man called Cyrus who is king. And this is what it says. In the third year... Of Cyrus, king of Persia, a revelation was given to Daniel, who was called Belteshazzar. Its message was true, and it concerned a great war. The understanding of the message came to him in a vision. At that time, I, Daniel, mourned for three weeks. I ate no choice food, no meat or wine touched my lips, and I used no lotions at all until the three weeks were over. On the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, the Tigris, I looked up, and there before me was a man dressed in linen, with a belt of fine gold from Uphaz around his waist. His body was like topaz, his face like lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and his voice like the sound of a multitude. I, Daniel, was the only one who saw the vision. Those who were with me did not see it, but such terror overwhelmed them that they fled and hid themselves. So I was left alone, gazing at this great vision. I had no strength left. My face turned deathly pale, and I was helpless. Then I heard him speaking, and as I listened to him, I fell into a deep sleep, my face to the ground." Daniel has this vision of a man dressed in linen, and linen were the garments which priests would have worn, and this man also has a belt made from gold of Uphaz around his waist. Uphaz is another name for a place called Ophir, which appears in the Bible as a kind of legendary place 
where the best gold and the best spices, the most wonderful stuff came from. We're told in the book of Kings that King Solomon, the most... Uh, the richest of all the kings of Israel, he would have traders who would go on a three-year cycle to Ophir and would bring back gold. So this figure who appears before Daniel, dressed as a priest with a kind of a kingly belt of gold around his waist, dressed to impress, who is this man that Daniel sees in his vision? There are various debates about this. Some people say that this is Jesus before Jesus comes on earth in the incarnation, that somehow Jesus is appearing to Daniel in this vision because the figure who appears, the man who appears, is so impressive and so awesome and so terrifying. Other people say, for various reasons, it's not Jesus, but it's a highly impressive angel, probably the archangel Gabriel. Now, we can't be definitive about who this man is that Daniel sees, but he's clearly impressive and clearly pretty scary. And Daniel has served very powerful emperors. He's served Nebuchadnezzar. He's now serving under under Cyrus. These are men who uh, ruled massive empires, held the power of life and death over multitudes. But Daniel knows, and Daniel again sees here, that there is a greater power. There is a higher power. Daniel has sat in the courts of mighty kings, but now he sees one who has greater power than any other human king that he has served. And this is, a, I think, a word of comfort to us. We can be overawed sometimes by worldly power, but we need to remember there's a greater authority, there's a greater power, there's a greater king. But that doesn't mean that the affairs of men are unimportant. This uh, story of Daniel's vision begins with a man, with a king, a human king, Cyrus, the third year of Cyrus's reign. And the fact that this vision happens in the third year of Cyrus's reign is significant because we know that in the first year of Cyrus's reign, two years before this, he had issued a decree that uh, the Jews who'd been taken into captivity, into exile in Babylonia, now had permission to go back home to Jerusalem and to rebuild the temple. We're told this in the book of Ezra. This is what it says. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and also to put it into writing. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any of his people among you may go up to Jerusalem in Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem. Then the family heads of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose heart God had moved, prepared to go up and build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. There'd been a 70-year exile, the people of God taken from Jerusalem across to Babylonia. And we're talking about big distances here. Uh, Babylonia over there on the right-hand side in what we'd think of now as Iraq. Jerusalem right over there on the Mediterranean coast. And to get there, you wouldn't have gone straight across because it was desert. You'd have followed that list, that uh, line of cities and the fertile crescent. So a long distance. And these Jews in Babylon, responding to the permission of Cyrus, head back home to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. Now, Daniel didn't go. And the question is, why didn't Daniel go? It might be simply that he was too old. He's in his 80s, and this is a terrific journey to get back from Babylonia to Jerusalem. So maybe he was just too old to make the trip. 
It might also have been that he was too important, that he was considered too significant as an advisor to the king to be able to go. But for whatever reason, two years later, now the third year of Cyrus's reign, Daniel is in mourning. And that, of course, raises the question, why is Daniel mourning? Why is he in a state of some confusion and depression? And it seems to be that Daniel would have heard that the mission back to Jerusalem wasn't going too well. This is what it says again in the book of Ezra, in Ezra chapter 4. The peoples around them, around the Jews, set out to discourage the people of Judah and make them afraid to go on building They bribed officials to work against them and frustrate their plans during the entire reign of Cyrus, king of Persia, and down to the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So Daniel would have probably heard this. The exiles have returned to Jerusalem to rebuild the city, rebuild the temple, but it's just not going very well. They're facing lots of opposition, lots of difficulty. Progress isn't being made. And so we find Daniel, an old man, disappointed, confused and mourning, standing by the banks of the river Tigris, trying to work out what on earth the Lord is up to. It says the great river, the Tigris, and the Tigris was a great river. It was up to a mile wide, a huge river. And you can imagine Daniel in his old age, in his disappointment, in his confusion, standing looking at this vast river and thinking, where's it all going? Where's all this water going? And where are the promises of God going? And where's life going? And what's going to happen? And will the temple be reestablished in Jerusalem? What is going to happen? Daniel is a man of vision. Daniel somebody who has experienced extraordinary things through the hands of the Lord. But Daniel is not immune to trouble. He's not immune to confusion. And I think this is something that we never grow past. It doesn't matter how long we've known the Lord. It doesn't matter how much we've seen. It doesn't matter how much we know. Things can still come which cause us confusion, which cause us trouble, which cause us to ask, where is it all going? What is happening? There can be things in our own lives which make us feel like that. And there can be things which are happening in the world which make us think like that. What is the Lord doing? Where is it all going? These are questions that, in a sense, everybody asks whether they know the Lord or not. Protesters in London, Extinction Rebellion protesters and the Trump protesters, they're asking that kind of question. Where is it all going? Where is it all headed? The Conservative Party at the moment, as they try and sift through multitudes of potential leaders, where is it all going? What's the point? Very good question, that one. The difference for Daniel, and the difference for us, is that Daniel knows the Lord's. And the Lord knows where it's all going. He knows where every drop in the mighty River Tigris is flowing, and the Lord knows exactly what is happening. And at this point, as Daniel spends three weeks in mourning, as he stands by the river contemplating life, he receives a vision. And it's an encounter that is overwhelming. And the whole of the rest of Daniel chapter 10 is taken up with Daniel and his companions being completely overcome by the intensity of the experience of this vision. And this vision takes up the rest of the book of Daniel, Daniel chapters 10, 11, and 12. And the vision is long and it's detailed. Part of the purpose, part of the reason why we decided to teach through the book of Daniel was to help teach us as a congregation 
what to do with books of the Bible like this, which, when you read them, can seem very confusing and very mystifying. And one of the principles that we're operating on is that we are to major on the major things, to dig out the big themes, the big messages of what God is doing, and worry less about the details. One of the mistakes that people often make when they read books like Daniel or books like Revelation is to dive right into all the details and get stuck in that and kind of miss the big picture of what is being spoken. We don't want to do that. We want to major on the majors and worry less about the details. But this prophecy, this vision which Daniel has given, it describes real events and real places and real people And it does that in symbolic, prophetic language. And it also describes spiritual realities. It describes the reality of spiritual warfare that is going on. And so at the end of Daniel 10, once Daniel's recovered somewhat from the shock of this vision, the man speaks to him and says this, Do you know why I have come to you? Soon I will return to fight against the prince of Persia, And when I go, the prince of Greece will come. But first, I will tell you what is written in the book of truth. Daniel gets divine revelation into the book of truth. The vision shows him things are going to happen, and it shows him how things are going to end. And in terms of the big picture, we can summarize the plot of the vision like this. What the vision reveals to him is first the rise of the Greek Empire under Alexander the Great. Alexander, the mighty conqueror, is going to arise and he's going to sweep across all the known worlds and place it under his control. But Alexander's reign was very short-lived and after he died, his empire was divided into four parts under his generals. There's a, a map here which gives you an impression. Uh, two larger ones, the Seleucids and the Ptolemies, and then two, two smaller ones divided into four parts. And then there's conflict between the different parts of this divided empire. The Ptolemies, the kings of the south, as they're described in this vision, uh, centered in Egypt, fight against the Seleucids, the kings of the north, who are based around Syria. And as the vision goes on, and as what's going to happen in human history is explained to Daniel, There's a warning about one particularly evil king who will arise. And this is the king Antiochus IV, who in the second century BC came to Jerusalem and slaughtered thousands of the Jews and desecrated the temple. This is one of his coins. We saw this earlier in this series. And on this coin, uh, there's the the legend, the, the motto, King Antiochus, God manifest bearer of victory. This is this boastful king. He says, I am God. I'm the bearer of victory. And he comes and he desecrates the temple in Jerusalem and he slaughters and tortures the Jewish people. There's incredible oppression against them. And Antiochus IV, he becomes a symbol of all the powers in all the ages that oppose God. And the vision that Daniel receives tells him that these things are going to happen. That's the human history. The revision reveals to him what is going to happen in human history. But the vision also reveals to Daniel a spiritual reality that there is a conflict spiritually between good and evil. This is what the man says to Daniel, Daniel 10.20. Soon I will return to fight against the prince of Persia, and when I go, the prince of Greece 
will come. Now, the prince of, prince of Persia and the prince of Greece that are described there, these are spiritual powers. These aren't human empires. They're not human kings. They're spiritual powers, spiritual authorities. Now, the thing about this is that there have been some very weird and unhelpful interpretations of this vision about the prince of Persia and the prince of Greece. People have burrowed into kind of details and got lost and confused without seeing the big picture. The big picture is the reality that God's people are caught up in spiritual conflict. We are caught up in spiritual warfare. It says exactly the same thing in the New Testament in Paul's, the Apostle Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus, Ephesians 6. He says this, Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Now, for those of us who've been around church a while, this is a very familiar passage. But if you're here for the first time, or if you can those of us who are familiar with it, try and look at it with fresh eyes. Actually, it might seem pretty weird. Talking about a spiritual conflict, a, a, a battle against spiritual powers, and clothing yourself in armor to, to fight against spiritual powers, it might all seem a bit strange because, after all, when we look at the problems of the world, we can lay the problems of the world at the feet of people. So when Antiochus IV came and massacred the Jews and desecrated the temple... That was a man who was evil and was doing evil and wicked things. And at work, when your boss has given you hell, that's a human being who's given you hell. It's a person. So what's this talk about spiritual powers and spiritual battle? What the Bible shows us, what the Bible tells us, is that it's not just human powers, but there are spiritual powers at work. There is a battle going on. And... This isn't some weird conspiracy theory about the Freemasons running a world government or any of that kind of nonsense. It's about a spiritual reality that there are spiritual powers that hate God and hate God's people. And so there is a spiritual fight in the heavenly realms. The good news is that through Christ Jesus, in Christ Jesus, by Christ Jesus, the war is won. The empty cross and the empty tomb have put an end to Satan's pretensions. Jesus has conquered. He has defeated our enemy. He's fulfilled all the promises. The serpent's head has been crushed. Jesus has defeated death. He's overcome sin. Satan's power has been stripped from him. But there are still ongoing spiritual battles. And so the people of God need to get armored up. That's what Paul says to the Ephesians, put on the armor of God. And when we become Christians, it's actually an invitation to join Fight Club. If you're not a follower of Jesus here this morning, our invitation to you would be come and follow Jesus. And that's an invitation to join Fight Club because you're called into spiritual battle. As we are engaged in an adventure of faith, proclaiming the good news of Christ, as we seek to experience and live in the purity of God, following Him and living holy as He's a holy God, as we seek to demonstrate and share the compassion of God, the kindness of God, which He has shared with us. That's about the work of the kingdom of God, and it's about the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms being pushed back as we engage in spiritual warfare. 
And the vision that Daniel was given reveals all of this to Daniel. The, vi the vision reveals a human reality. These kings, these empires will come. They'll do this. And it also reveals a spiritual reality. There is a spiritual fight going on. But the main point, the big picture is this, that God is king. That's the main point of the whole book of Daniel. God's in charge. God sees the big picture of all of history, and he sees all the small details. You stand by the mighty Tigris and you wonder where all the water is going. God knows he is king. And the Lord wants Daniel to know this and he wants us to know this. That history is not just a river of meaninglessness flowing into a sea of despair. But God is going to work his purposes out. And there's no human king and no demon that can thwart him and his plans. Hallelujah. I could finish right there, 20-minute sermon. I'm sure you'd be very grateful. <laughs> but let me just give you some take-homes, ways we can apply this. One is that we live in the end times. The vision that Daniel has is a vision of the future. It's a vision of the end. And actually, it's a sequence of ends because it describes these different battles, these different empires that are rising, Alexander and then the four generals who take over from him and then the Ptolemies and the Seleucids and the Antiochus and looking ahead to the Roman Empire and all human powers. Uh, that's how prophetic revelation works. It's like uh, ranges of mountains. We've just been in Cape Town. In the Cape, there's the Cape Fold Mountains and you see a range of mountains and then you think that's it and then you get to that range of mountains, you get up it, and there's another range behind. And biblical prophecy is like that. There's layers to it. And uh, the vision that Daniel has is, a, is about the end, but it's actually a sequence of ends. When Alexander the Great becomes king of all the earth, it looks like the end, but it's not. There's going to be four generals who take over after him, and that looks like the end, but it's not. And when Antiochus comes and des desecrates Jerusalem, it looks like the end, but it's not. With each terrible empire that arises, it feels like this is it, but it's not. And there's a repeated mistake that people make, that people of God have made, to think that this is the end time. Back in the 1300s, years 1347 to 51, when the Black Death swept across Europe and something between 30 to 60% of the population of Europe died. I mean, can you imagine, can you imagine if over a four-year period, half of the population of Bournemouth and Paul was wiped out by disease? Just unimaginable what happened in the Black Death. People thought, this is the end, and you could understand why they felt that. World War II, when Hitler came to power, there were many who thought, this is the end. 9-11, when that happened, I remember all kinds of people saying, now this is the end. These are all signs of the end. They're not the end themselves. Jesus said this, Luke 21, 8, 9. Jesus said, Watch out that you are not deceived, for many will come in my name claiming I am he, and the time is near. Do not follow them. When you hear of wars and uprisings, do not be frightened. These things must happen first, but the end will not come right away. The reality is that we do live in the last age. We live in the end days. That's because Christ has come and death has been shown no longer to have the final word. Life has triumphed over death through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That means that we are now in the end days, but we're called to live now with purpose. Christians, we're not here just sitting out, waiting to be raptured 
No, we're called for purpose. This is what the Bible says, what Paul says in his letter to the Galatians. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. The instruction to us as we live in these end times is to keep working, to keep sowing, and to keep expecting a harvest. Let's keep at it. Second take home we can see from this vision is that we are to expect hardship. Daniel and his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, described in some of the stories in Daniel, had experienced extraordinary rescue. Rescued from lions, rescued from flames. But the vision that Daniel receives here warns about hardship. And of course, the underlying backstory to the whole of Daniel is that this is a book about exile. Daniel and his friends have been ripped from their home in Jerusalem and carried as captives into the empire of Babylon. And while in Babylon for these 70 years, Daniel's life had been blessed, but it certainly wasn't always easy. And that's our experience too, and we're to expect that. It affects us in all kinds of ways. Howard and Naomi Kellett, who are meant to be with us for our weekend away, no longer able to come because a couple of weeks ago, Naomi diagnosed with breast cancer, had surgery on Friday. These things happen, unwanted, unlooked for. Last week at our conference in Cape Town, there were a bunch of Nepali pastors with us who were actually there because churches in the UK had given a year or two ago to pay in order for them to be able to come. They're thinking about the reality of their lives, just the the hassle of getting from Nepal to Cape Town was not easy, and the hardship and the hardness of their lives as they live in a country with incredible poverty and real oppression, persecution against believers. They have a reality of hardship. Think about all the martyrs, all those who have been killed because they own the name of Jesus. We need to remember that being a Christian is signing up to Fight Club. And we should expect difficulty in pursuit of the goal that God has given us. There's a famous advertisement, Ernest Shackleton's advert when he was recruiting for members for his endurance expedition to Antarctica. Just a short but compelling recruitment advert. Men wanted for hazardous journey, low wages, bitter cold, Long hours of complete darkness, safe return, doubtful, honor and recognition in event of success. And of course, the legend is that you have men queuing out of the door wanting to be part of this expedition. Why? Because it was going to be tough, but it was going to have potentially incredible rewards. That's our calling as Christians as well. We're to expect hardship, but we're to expect great success because actually for us, success is certain because Christ has won the victory. If you're not yet a follower of Jesus, this is the invitation to you. Come and join the fight club. Come and join the expedition. Expect a hazardous journey with many obstacles, with many trials, but with honor and recognition guaranteed at the end. This past week, we've been remembering, commemorating the events of D-Day. It's the same kind of story, incredible hardship, incredible difficulty, but amazing victory, which produced a great result. I was born way too long, too late for D-Day, but I'm sure I think most men would feel that. 
wish we'd been there, to have been part of it, to have been part of that victory, to have been part of something that noble, something that great. Being caught up in the Christian adventure is like that. It's being caught up in an amazing, at times hard, pilgrimage, but for a great and mighty victory. We need to have a wartime mentality. We need to be extremophile disciples. We need to be the kind of disciples of Christ who thrive even in the midst of hardship. It's a vision to Daniel. And the third take home for us from this is that we are to expect resurrection. This is what it says at the end of the vision in Daniel 12. At that time, Michael, the great prince who protects your people, will arise. There will be a time of distress such as not, has not happened from the beginning of nations until then. But at that time, your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book, will be delivered. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens, and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, roll up and seal the words of the scroll until the time of the end. Many will go here and there to increase knowledge. The angelic vision that Daniel sees reveals to him how things will be at the end of the end. And it says that people are going to go around increasing Knowledge. Well, we see that knowledge, or at least information, is increasing at the speed of a nuclear explosion in our digital age. But true knowledge is found in the vision, in the words delivered to Daniel. And the promise is one of a resurrection. It says, All the multitudes who sleep in the dust will rise. Now, Jesus said exactly the same thing. John chapter 5, Jesus said this. A time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done what is good will rise to live, and those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. Now, this isn't a very fashionable subject, talking about a resurrection which ends in a judgment, some to rise to life and others to rise to condemnation. Although, interestingly, so many of our movies are full of stories about resurrection and about judgments. There's something in the human race which knows that we're meant for more, that life is somehow meant to continue beyond this mortal life. And also there's a sense in us that judgment is right, that there needs to be a reckoning, that things need to be put right. And so, so many of our movies, so many of our stories tell stories about resurrection and tell stories about judgments. Now the hope and the warning of the gospel is this. The warning is that those who reject God and reject his ways will experience shame everlasting shame. But the hope of the gospel is that those who are wise, those who are faithful to God and his ways, will receive honor. And there's a special word here in terms of those who lead others to God. Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens, and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. There's an encouragement here to us in terms of declaring the gospel. If we lead others to know God, somehow eternally that's going to lead to us shining like the stars. There's going to be a resurrection. 
The dead will arise from the dust, some to eternal shame, some to eternal honor, some to shine like the stars in the heavens. Which are we going to be? And then the angel says to Daniel to roll the scroll up and to seal it. This is an order of a monarch, an order of a king to seal the scroll. This is a word that is not to be tampered with or changed. And then at the end of the story, we get a picture, picture of the great scroll opener, the one who is authorized to break the seal. This is what it says in Revelation 5 about Jesus. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. The truth is spoken to Daniel. The truth about a resurrection that is coming. The scroll is sealed. At the end of the ages, Jesus opens the scroll and he is going to gather his people from every corner of the earth to reign on the earth and to shine like stars. This is the hope that we have. There's no monster that can triumph in the end. Jesus has triumphed and in him we will reign. And this means that we can lean into the future. Daniel, an 85-year-old man, hearing disappointing reports from Jerusalem, standing on the banks of the great Tigris, watching the waters flow into the sea, questioning what was going on, what was happening. God revealed a vision to him which meant that he could continue to lean into the future, confident of God's victory and confident of glory and of honor. And that is our confidence too. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for the victory that you have won. Thank you that we see the vision now more completely, more perfectly than even Daniel did because, Jesus, we know the story of your life and of your death and of your resurrection. When uh, the vision was given to Daniel that there would be a, a resurrection, he only heard the story, but we have seen the story enacted because, Jesus, we know that the tomb is empty, that you have defeated death. Because of that, we are living in the end days, the days in which death no longer has the last word, but the days in which life is breaking out. And so, Lord, I pray for us. I pray those of us who know you would be caught up again in this adventure of faith and that we would proclaim the gospel. I pray that we'd be wise and we'd lead others to righteousness. And Jesus, I pray for those here who don't yet know you, that they would get caught up in this adventure as well. They'd choose to join Fight Club and come into this adventure of faith with Christ Jesus with this great hope and promise of honor forever, of shining like stars in the presence of the King, of reigning with Christ over all things. Lord, in the events of human history, in the ups and downs of our own lives, Lord, thank you we can look to you. We can have confidence for the future because you have guaranteed that future for us and for your people forever. We thank you for this, Jesus. Amen.